0: Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, a new podcast episode. This uh, talk from Ramdas harks back to uh, February 19th, 1993, just a few years before he actually had that stroke, which was 96 or 7. And this is from Long Beach, California. Before I get into it, I just want to remind everybody about this wonderful partnership that we have with BetterHelp. Uh, they are supporting the podcasts on be here now network and they're a professional counseling service and it's a secure thing done online and uh, they'll get with you and match you up with a professional therapist and you can get started talking to somebody within uh, a couple of days 48 hours And uh, I have read where it's so difficult these days to get... We've had so much stress in the last year and a half from so many places. It's very difficult to actually get... I tried to help somebody out and somebody I knew said, I can't, I have no more time. I'm sorry, I can't help your friend. So this is a a wonderful platform. And uh, as I say... Uh here's what you do. Of course, you go to BetterHelp. So that's better, H-E-L-P, dot com slash be here now. Because when you put in the slash be here now, you'll get 10% off your first month. So go to BetterHelp and try it out. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a platform where many, many people have uh, taken advantage, over a million people. So there you go. Better dot com slash be here now, so in this talk, Ramdas well, it's a number of different things, but the first one that occurred to me uh he talks about personality seems to be the realest thing for most of us. we are definitely well ensconced in our personalities, and so that means dealing with some of the psychological aspects of our being and many people on the spiritual path kind of jettison that and a little bit of maybe spiritual bypass that we all do at one time or another. And so uh, it seems appropriate here with this talk from Ramdas that that uh, he basically addresses that and addresses some of the psychological states that we get into, like victimization, being victims. And he tells some really funny anecdotes around people who they all say we were made to do it and so it's uh as one of the many traps of the mind and feeling like a victim and one of the things that really struck me in this talk was he he really uh, centered on how busy we get being individuals and look what's going on you know especially related to the polarization with our politics and Vaccinations with the the virus and the pandemic, and and wanting to really claim that right—it's our birthright, being an individual. And as he as he puts it, Ramdas, it's it's all around. What do I need and what do I want? Yeah, and in doing in getting uh, sort of overwhelmed by that individual. Uh, idea that we have about ourselves which is separate we throw out the web of connection to extended family and community um he says ramda says we threw it out in our zeal to be individuals and we ended up dealing with a tremendous amount of pathology around alienation and just look out and see all of the conspiracy stuff that's out there um all of the QAnon-type stuff that's out there is certainly, I believe, a result of deep alienation that has occurred from some of the isolation that we've had with the pandemic and much of the polarization that's going on in this country. So, again, how apt is all of that, you know, related to what's going on now? This is from, what, 1993? Of course, this has all been developed over many, many, many years. So it uh, it does make sense. Uh, something else that I picked out that I liked, uh, that when you get to it, it's uh, a good focus. Talking about our belief systems, which we all have. And anytime you have a belief, uh, you are vulnerable. Because a lot of that belief is predicated on projections and like and dislike and and that's what we are all about uh, and and on the spiritual path is is get to the truth of our being which is invulnerable it is not vulnerable to the whims of time or space and uh and and this really describes Ramdas over all these years really He said, you and I are learning to stand nowhere to help people caught in standing somewhere. And that's part of that uh, film that we did with Ram Dass, Becoming Nobody. And and again, he reiterates this many, many times over many, many different lectures that In order to become nobody, you have to become a somebody first. There's got to be something there that can be transformed. That's always a a sensible approach. And it's a real deal because we grow up into these somebodies. And uh, sometimes we don't quite manifest the maturity of that somebody. We tend to use that as a bit of a bypass too. We are not quite enough of a somebody sometimes. If that makes any sense. Uh, what else is there? Something. There's something beautiful. He said. And this this really uh, we we've, we've been you know we've been working as a found at love the different hat Love Server Member Foundation around education around inclusion, diversity. And uh, this here, this is beautiful what Ram Dass said. We have to listen to one another just to hear the pain of their predicament because the minute each of us is heard and we feel heard, we are freer to let go of that particular identity and then we can meet behind, behind our identities and start to play. But that is similar to what I just talked about in terms of becoming somebody. We have to... Uh, we have hearing the pain of another person's predicament is includes what that identity and in and in some cases that is fluid, and to be able to hear that and not react to it for reasons of uh, different time and space being brought up, different cultural influences, causes and conditions. It's there's a lot to hear. There really is. So this is Ramdas from from, uh, as I said, 1993, Long Beach. And again, please do visit our sponsor. It's not really a sponsor. It's more of a partner uh, uh, that we are aligned with and have value systems that, uh, that, as I say, do align. And what they do is really serviceable. For people, basically, because it's online, and this is a trusted uh, company, BetterHelp.com. Go to BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/slash, be here now. This is the 50th anniversary of Be Here Now. By the way, we're going to have some exciting stuff coming up this fall to 2021. Uh, But tune in to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you get all of these wonderful podcasts from so many different teachers and thought leaders. I will check in with you again next time. Namaste.
1: There's another aspect, just one more thing, that we seem to be, in this country anyway, Uh, Obsessed with personality. Personality seems to be the realest thing for most of us. And there is a very pervasive victimization feeling in this country. That we're all victims of this or that. Of our childhoods, of economics, of Saddam Hussein, of something. It would all be okay if it weren't for And I've been hearing some of the, I've been reading in the newspapers, some of the extraordinary extremes of this. Like an FBI agent embezzled $2,000 from the FBI, which he gambled away, he then was fired and he sued the FBI because he said he was handicapped because he had a gambling addiction and they can't ha- fire him for having an addiction. How about a teacher who is tardy every day and gets fired and, fu- and um, sues the school system because she has got a compulsive lateness syndrome This one, I think, is the most interesting one. Uh, Two men were having a refrigerator race, which I believe means you put a refrigerator in your back and race with it. And one of them fell and hurt his back and he sued the refrigerator company for not labeling the danger. It's interesting that what we're doing in a funny way is we are, in the first two cases, we're like medicalizing sin. You know, there's no morality anymore, it's all a medical problem. I was made to do it. Now, partly that's true, we all know, and partly it's a trap of mind, It's a trap of mind that keeps you feeling like a victim. Personality has become, and personally dynamics, have become such a strong framework for seeing reality. that we even take the opportunities for transcendence and we cast them in psychological terms and therefore close them off. Here's a quote from a psychiatric text. The obvious similarities between schizophrenic regression and the practice of yoga and Zen meditation Merely indicates that the general trend in Oriental cultures is to withdraw into the self from overbearingly difficult physical and social reality. It's all pathology. It's interesting how leisure time has has allowed us to become very much focused on personality. That when there's no money around, that doesn't seem to be that important when you're starving to death. And it may well be that that particular frame of conceptual mind is one of the places that we are just about to transcend into much more a sense of community or network or biotic identity or collective consciousness because we did this funny thing we got so busy being individual what do I need what do I want that we threw over a lot of the web the framework the extended family the the, the community we threw it over in our zeal to be individual. And we ended up having to deal with a tremendous amount of pathology arising out of alienation. And I was part of the responsibility for that in the 60s, as we'll talk about in a minute. Now, just to balance the the thing for a moment before I go on, I just want to say that there are a lot of wonderful positive things at this moment in the world as as you're absorbing stuff and looking at what this moment is. In terms of the world, the real income of the poor has doubled in the past 40 years. That means they can buy more stuff. The under-five death rate has been cut by 50%. The average life expectancy in developing countries has increased by one-third. Less than a a half of children went to primary school 40 years ago. Now over three-quarters do. There used to be access to safe water for only 10% of the population. Now it's approaching 60%. The Cold War is over. Nuclear tensions have eased. There is a growing environmental awareness, especially among the young. The role of women has become recognized and valued, and the uniqueness is being heard. The information age is giving us global awareness. Information age is making accessible to us all the religious traditions, all the religious traditions. So we are no longer just limited by Christianity or just limited by Judaism or Islam. There is an emerging world government that everybody realizes inevitably must have some teeth, the United Nations. There is a breakdown and a realizing of the finiteness of the myths that have dominated this country that have focused on materialism. There is the growing awareness that straight materialism is not an identity with happiness. The myth was if I worked hard enough and amassed enough, I would be happy. And you need only watch Dynasty and Dallas and all those things to realize the incredible suffering at the top. (laughs) There have been incredible leaps in medical technology. Practically, we can live eternally, if you want that. It's raised incredible ethical and technological problems in its wake. But this is a a thing that's happening. Morality has come back into politics. Interestingly enough, spearheaded by TV evangelists. (laughs) (laughs) See, it is not an ill will, an ill wind that doesn't blow some good. And if you want ill winds that blow good, look at AIDS. AIDS has awakened... Political, psychological, spiritual awakening on a vast scale. It's got many people to confront death that have never done it. It's awakened huge amounts of compassion in many sectors of society. It's dealt with a lot of our fears and prejudices and brought them to the surface. So all in all, when I look at all that list, when I let it all steep into me, population, environment, nuclear waste, my God, we don't know what to do with our nuclear waste. It's collecting everywhere. We don't know what to do with it. The part of me that is a separate individual human being says, I got to do something about this. Because I'm like the frog that suddenly woke up and said, boy, the water's hot. And all it took was an election. The election brought to the surface with Ross Perot poking us from the edge. You know, Ross Perot was on the morning news the other day. He's got a personality that irritates the hell out of me, but I really admire the role he's playing in the society. Because, you know... He's outside of the government, in more or less. More or less, I really must point out, and uh, he's therefore a goad. So what he said after Clinton's speech the other day was, he gets an A plus for salesmanship, but after all, he only suggests Congress enacts, and those they're all they all sold out to lobbyists a long time ago, and then he reads quotes from all the European governments to tell how the United States is for sale and he says our work has just begun we've got to watch the Congress very carefully now and if anything is awakening a participatory democracy because I feel that Bill Clinton and Al Gore are very intelligent men and they have goodness in them That's not all they have, but they have goodness in them. They are not tremendously aware in the sense of uh, altered states of consciousness because they didn't inhale. That applause all came from the back part, not the Church of Religious Science. <laughs> so you can rest easy. <laughs> but I feel that when you put two, you know what we do with our presidents is, you know how those tribes, they take a maiden and they, they give her jewels and, for a year and then they put her in the fire? It's like a sacrificial ritual, and we do it every four years. We sort of sacrifice somebody into our greed for power. And we give them all this power, and we watch them frazzle as they keep their hand on the transmitter of this incredible energy. And then when they've turned into these horrible, ghastly things, we shuttle them off to Houston and we start another one. (laughs) I'm saying all this lightly, by the way. I, I mean, I think that George Bush was a—he was a nice man. He just wasn't very clever. He wasn't very wise. He was not a wise man. He was not a wise man, but he was a nice man. But what I feel is that the administration. Uh, needs our involvement in a way that is critical at the moment. I'm talking about our meaning, this group of people, this kind of people. Because you and I are attempting to do inner work. We're attempting to keep our perspectives and our context going. Because when I read that list of perspectives... I mean, is this Armageddon or is this the brave new world? Is this about to happen or is it horrible? Is it beautiful? What's it, what is it? Is it a bubble and a phantom? For us, we have to have the capacity to keep all of those in mind. You can't take any one of them and hang on to it. Any belief system you have is Vulnerable. They say in the mystical tradition, you can stand nowhere. Then you're free. As long as you're standing somewhere, you're you're vulnerable. If you stand in heaven and look down at earth, you could fall. If you stand on earth and look up, earth could go away. If you're standing in your ego, it'll die. If you're standing in your mythic thing, it'll weave on to something else. Any form is changing. That's the nature of form. It all changes. So if you try and form includes the astral planes and all the planes other than the formless. So if you have any form, if you're trying to hold on to any form at all, you're vulnerable. And you and I are attempting to awaken to the truth of our being which is not vulnerable to the winds of time and not vulnerable to space. We're awakening to awareness. And awareness is, it has nothing to do with you or me, it just is. Our capacity to keep that perspective and at the same moment be involved in the world is an incredible art form because the seduction of the horror of it all or the fascination with the power or the intensity of the pleasures narrow your consciousness into an identification with your desire system. And then you lose the ability to see the whole gestalt. The ability to see the whole gestalt does not mean a kind of a, um, a kind of a, an equanimity that is in which passion is absent. What's demanded of us is simultaneously passionate involvement in life, real intense breaking of the heart and joy, and at the same moment, a quiet, spacious awareness and a quality of emptiness in which you can see the clarity of all phenomena arising in your awareness. This is what a changing world needs. It needs, as Thomas Merton once said, when people are drowning in a river, you can't help them out if you are in the river with them. You've got to find a place to stand to help them. And bizarrely enough, you take that and apply it here, you and I are learning to stand nowhere to help people caught in standing somewhere. Is that too weird, or can you hear it? Because you and I sense that it's possible for a society to be compassionate. And what we have done to our poor and what we've done to our hungry And the way in which greed has gone untrammeled, and we, you know, I work with the Guatemalans through the SAVA Foundation, which is a really wonderful organization. I encourage you all to learn more about it and help, and there's a table out there for it. uh, it, One of the things we do is work in Guatemala. And at one point in Guatemala, I may, um, in Guatemala, We found 14 villages that were near starvation in the Altiplano. And our budget was so tight, we only had money to help four of them. And we said, well, we'll help you four this year and we'll help the others next year. And they said, you don't understand. Whatever money you give these four, we'll divide among the 13. Because in our holy book, it says, when you're walking along and somebody falls, you help them up, and then everybody walks just a little bit slower. Now, I'd like to ask you, as the affluent, tiny percentage of this society, of this world, are you willing to walk a little bit slower so that all of us can walk along together and and is your life representing that is my life representing that i've learned all these planes of consciousness through 25 years of drugs and meditation and yoga and gurus and all that stuff And at first, I'd get high, and I'd say, wow, we're all one. Or, it's all formless. Ah. And then I'd come back, and I'd say, well, that was interesting. (laughs) And over the years of going up and down and up and down and up and down and in and out forget up because it really isn't up and down like higher and lower these aren't really that's a that's a a hype because the earth is as high as any other plane but going from plane to plane to plane to plane and after a while they start to meld a little bit so that you look at another human being and you see their personality and you see who they think they are but you also see that there's the divine mother in drag again (laughs) you know i see you in there i know who you are no no i'm julia (laughs) yes i know who you're saying you think you are in other words you begin to see behind the veils and then you see you see the one speaking to you speaking to itself because you see you're part of the one and it's the one in dialogue with itself. And you begin to feel and integrate these planes of consciousness into your being. And then you see that you're going to be free when you're not holding into one plane. You're not sitting on normal waking consciousness looking up at this or out at that. You're not standing anywhere. You're standing at the... You're, you are God looking at your play. You are a separate entity who is the part of the play looking at God. You're doing both of them at the same moment. And you look around at yourself and you say, what's keeping me from letting this thing happen fully? And you see it's your fear. It's your stash that you're afraid of letting go of. (laughs) Because I look and I see we're all one. But then I act on this plane as if we weren't. And I can't yet get it together. I can't get it together. And yet I know that when I have integrated this, and I don't know what form it takes. It's not the simple one of you just give up everything and then you're free. That isn't it. It's not the material level. That's not the game it's something about the inner space and how you deal with the stuff of life but i see that's our work as black elk said we we see more than we know and we know more than we can say you and i are are wisdom carriers at this point you wouldn't be in this room you wouldn't be in the church you wouldn't be visiting you wouldn't come to hear Ramdas it's all i mean we're a select group of nuts if you will whatever <laughs> but we come together and we the something we sense we sense we are part of a deeper wisdom universe and that has in it when there's a quietness of mind it has in it a compassion a deep and real compassion, not pity and not kind, just sort of social kindness, but real kindness that comes out of deep, deep compassion. And you take care of the environment not because I'm going to sacrifice for the environment, because, but because I am the environment and I hurt. This kind of consciousness is what we can feed into the system at this moment. This is the kind of thing that because a government can be intelligent, but it's really hard for it to be wise because it is so compromised by so many powerful worldly forces. And it is only in the old days, kings had wise persons around them who had nothing to do with the running of the kingdom. But if you look at the political structure, that doesn't really happen these days. Now, I look back. You all still here? Okay. Okay. I look back at the last time I felt this breath of change, which was, as you might have guessed, in the 60s. Now, in the 60s, there were a whole set of factors that worked. You got President Kennedy, that was a new generation of president like we have again today. There was the um, incredible affluence in the culture that had come after the Second World War that had been built up, which allowed a lot of people to play. There were talks about what are we going to do with our leisure in life. Big articles about leisure. New problem in society was leisure. Leisure. Uh, There were psychedelics. There were chemicals that altered consciousness. And the messages that happened of those people that saw that were carried by the minstrels, the rock and roll movement, into the world. So at a moment in the early 60s, there was the sense that the human consciousness was breaking free of the prison of a set of very patriarchal, vertical social institutions. It was an incredible moment. I mean, it was a moment humorously characterized by a lot of people standing around the Pentagon holding hands, oming so the Pentagon would rise. It was characterized by the person putting the flower into the rifle of the soldier. Pictures that are in your images, your, your image bank, I'm sure. At that time, there was a sense that because of whether it was information age, mobility, chemistry, whatever it was there was a shift in the seeing of reality so that everything that had seemed so absolutely solid started to look flexible again. And that was the moment when the civil rights movement could happen. That had been building for so long on so many, the sweat of so many people's brows, the backs of so many people. It was the time of the sexual revolution when we broke out of sort of kind of Victorian Puritanism. Although Queen Victoria wasn't that pure, it turns out. (laughs) That royal family, I'll tell you, you watch them. (laughs) Suddenly, everything was opening up for a moment. And the citizenry had the guts to say to the government, I think you're running our foreign policy from values that are not moral. And that was the anti-Vietnam movement. It was an incredible period of time. What it also had in it was a naivete. It was focused around young people, first of all. I was already old then. I mean, I've been old. I've missed everything along the way. I was always too old for everything. It was focused among young people who thought that because they had seen through the illusion in which everybody's collective mind had conspired to make real, because they'd seen through it, that if they just held up a flower, like Buddha did in his famous lecture, everybody would see through the illusion and the whole thing would fall. I remember we used to have maps, uh, charts on the wall, Tim, Leary, and I, as to how soon everybody would get enlightened. I mean, 10 years was like maximum, max. (laughs) And so everybody just charged ahead. But what happened was that the momentary feeling of, oops, here comes anarchy, here comes chaos, and the fact that we polarized the culture because it was us against them in the anti-Vietnam movement, it started a reaction in the society. It started a pendulum swing of the conservative and fundamentalist groups organizing, fed by the 60s, to create an incredible structure to push against that chaos, that potential chaos. But now we're in the 90s. And I would point out that the baby boomers will be 50 in 1996. And the baby boomers have now started to enter the power domain of the establishment. Now the game's different, isn't it? Now there's no them. It's just us. Now is the time when we don't have to polarize we don't have to walk over somebody to, to realize our, the dream of possibility. We can play from within the system. We don't have to push against it. We don't have to set up alternative societies. I work with business groups like the Social Venture Network that are designed, people like Ben and Jerry's and, and uh, Body Shop and groups like that, that are saying, let's figure out how business can be socially responsible and compassionate and have a larger bottom line. And they make, they're big successful corporations. It's no longer the, the hippie on the corner selling beads that says, hey man, I want to give you my money. You know, it's a different game. This is a different moment in history. If you and I want the objectives and I think we have a sense of what we're talking about. We have a sense that we want a more conscious and compassionate society. We have a sense that we want to open to death as part of life. As Rilke said, to embrace death Fully and hold it gently. To be able to do that is extraordinary. It gives life its fullness of meaning to see death as part of life process, not as an error somebody made. That's part of what we would like our society to do to not be driven by fear all the time. And the deepest fear is the fear of death. To allow the society to regain the network, the sense of community, the sense of the common good, the sense that you understand that your dharma or your part in the game is not only your own well-being, But you also are part of systems. You are what what I'd call honoring your incarnation. For me to honor my incarnation, when my father was old and sick, I took care of him. I hadn't planned to do that, but when it came time, it just felt right to do that. Because I was a member of the family, and he had taken care of me when I was little, so I took care of him when he was old. And it felt right. Right. And I'm a member of a participatory democracy and it feels right for me to participate. And I'm a Jew and it feels right for me to try to understand what that means and to honor it and to listen and to feel my way. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm gonna do all the practices. I don't have to be a Jew as somebody else says a Jew should be. But I can listen and turn, open and learn. There are hundreds of identities each of us have. And to honor your incarnation fully is understanding your curriculum on earth. It is freedom. This is far out, it's far to me, that most people push against parts of their incarnation. And the Buddha said, if you have If you're stuck with aversions or attractions, you aren't free. So if you're pushing against something, it's got you. So finally, you come to terms with your age, your sexuality, your this, your that, your everything. Because it costs less to do it, really, than it does to push against it. I think we would like to have a society that that mends the intergenerational gap, uh, rip, in which we are not acting in a way that isn't recognizing till the seventh generation, that we are honoring our responsibility to the children in terms of their their conception, their growth, their education, and leaving them something to play with. I've been learning an immense amount over the last few years about honoring diversity. And I have just one emotional example of that. I was talking to Rabbi Zalman Schachter. I was interviewing him. And I said, Zalman, if you were an Israeli, what would you say to an Arab? And he said, Oy, Gavald. <laughs> That's the beginning. He said, you know, he said, We have to learn to grieve with one another. We have to listen to one another. People of different ethnic backgrounds, just to listen, just to hear the pain of their predicament. Because the minute each of us is heard and we feel heard, we are freer to let go of that particular identity. And the minute we're freer to let go of that identity, we can meet behind our identities and start to play. But we're not going to let go until we're heard. So I would like a world in which people hear each other. Now, when you mention change, I'll just go on for about 15 more minutes, if that's all right with you. Is that all right? or is you, Are you too uncomfortable? And then, then we'll take a break, and after the break we'll do uh, questions and answers and a meditation and stuff like that for those of you that are gluttons for punishment. In, the thing about change is... Since all phenomena change, it is amazing how there is fear. It's not amazing, but change gives rise to fear. I mean, there's that great image of the caterpillar in the cocoon, going into the cocoon, looking up at the butterfly and saying, you're never going to get me up in one of those things. In a way, we often would rather stay in our dingy prison than come out and play because we're afraid of change. And the way you can begin to see as you're quieter, the forces of resistance against change, and you will begin to see the way the whole game is embedded in a web of a conspiratorial reality that says, you, if you change this, everything else here doesn't change, and slowly it'll suck that back in again. And you begin, you've got to stand a little outside of it. You and I have a responsibility to have one foot in each camp, to have a foot in, the, in spiritual awareness that is free of who the hell cares, It's all beautiful, it's all perfect, it's all the play of God, it's all the Leela, it's all a bubble, a phantom, a dream. And the other foot in this plane of reality in which we are doing everything we can to bring consciousness, divinity, spirit, and beauty into life. And it's that balance... It's that balance you and I are called upon to do. That's our role in this game. That's the role we've been being prepared for some of us all our lives. That's what the inner and the outer, when they come together, that's where that inward work doesn't turn into the me generation of narcissism. It ends up like the hero's return for Joseph Campbell, or it ends up like the uh, the Plato's cave where he goes out and sees the sunshine and then goes back into the cave to help the other. It's the it's the return. It's the return back in. But it's not you and I aren't strong enough to stand in the marketplace without getting fried because we grew up in this conspiracy, and it knows just how to suck us into its reality. And therefore, it demands of us that we intensify our inner practices and keep working to get that balance like I look at the morning news on television but about 15 minutes before I start I sit down and meditate so that when the news comes at me I can take it in and consume it back into spaciousness rather than oh, ooh, wah, ah ee, mm, ah, ha you know I mean the fascination is infinite the seductions of form are infinite and if you are seeing the possibility that we as a collectivity could live in the realm of form and formlessness, of of matter and spirit, of the integration of all these things in our beings and all at once. It behooves you as as a part of it, as a bodhisattva, to work on yourself to be that instrument. As Gandhi said, my life is my message. How you live, how you walk, how you walk into the supermarket, how you drive your car, when you drive your car, what you do with your money, all of it is part and parcel. How you take care of your body, how you honor the sacredness of life, how you work on yourself to cultivate the witness, how you retreat and so you can come back, how you take your vacations and use them to deepen your emptiness and your love, how you practice loving, how you practice generosity of spirit and compassion. These are a hundred things that you and I can do and can be to fulfill our, our mythic role in this moment in history, whatever it may be, whether we are just the paint on the top of the 108th floor or we're minor matter in a galaxy of which there are five billion. It's as if you live with it doesn't matter, but I'll work like hell for it. You live with that paradox. You live with paradox all the time. You embrace the paradox. There's nothing to do Like the spiritual statement, one does nothing and nothing is left undone. That's two levels of consciousness. There's a level of awareness in which you're doing nothing. You're just here. It's all here. Phenomena arising, passing away, arising in your consciousness. Ah, death. Ah, suffering. Ah, pain. Ah, the rose. Ah, the birth. Ah, ah. And the other part of you has incarnated and it has human pain and human feelings and yearnings and desires. And that's part of the beauty of the way form works. And our job is to embrace the paradox, to be with the suffering of the world, with the spaciousness of allowing without saying hey, somebody really screwed up because you don't even know whether it's screwed up. It's just your rational mind that's a part of your separateness that thinks things got screwed up. How do you know? The rational mind's a trivial subsystem. Sitting around saying, hey, metasystem, I think you really screwed up. Right? If I were God, I'd do it differently. You don't even know why it's being done the way it is. What are you getting so upset about? At the same moment, you're a human being and you're suffering and everybody else is suffering and you do what you can to relieve suffering. Even though at another level you understand that suffering is part of the grace of the whole system. What paradoxes you got to live with? You and I have the challenge and the opportunity to do that. It's in, absolutely incredible. The resistances you will see, I mean, there's a lot of denial that's going on in our society at the moment of all those things I told you about. I mean, these things were all going on for the past 10, 20, 20 years. So when we got more poverty, we did that by helping the rich more. We've responded to the population explosion with our pro-life movements. We've uh, uh, We've responded to toxic waste by putting it underground where we can't see it. So it'll just contaminate the groundwater. We've dealt with the debt by borrowing further. So we'll have money to play with. We do token things, we do nice things, but they're still tokens. We save our bottles and cans. (laughs) I mean, it's good, it's good, and I don't want to knock it, it's wonderful. But don't let it get you off the hook too easily. Or we go into depression and despair and say it all stinks. I mean, I was with John Seed, he's a revolutionary deep ecologist. Great guy, an Australian. He chains himself to tractors and to trees and things like that. And I said, John, where are we in the rainforest thing, which is going to affect all the climates and the rainfalls and all that stuff that you might notice? I said, John, where are we? And he says, well, as far as I can see, it's too late. I said, oh, yeah? Yeah, he said, it's, it's probably too late. He said, at this point, he said, the inertia is so heavy of exploitation and poverty. He said, at this point, it would take a miracle. I said, yeah. He said, yeah, but he said, don't underestimate us. After all, we came up out of the ocean onto land. But it's very easy when I say to people, John said it's too late. And I let people sit with that. What does it feel like to decide it's too late? That there's nothing we can do and we blew it. We blew it because we weren't conscious enough and technology got out of control and our greed got out of control. Buddha told us the people that take incarnation on this plane have greed. And it's an interesting balance. We've been struggling with these balances, like the balance between business and government. If business rules, which it has been doing, and multinationals and all, it's piracy. If government rules all by itself, it's tyranny. Our balance is between piracy and tyranny. It's a fascinating place we have to keep working. <laughs> so we, some of us go into deep depressions. And we resist. We resist as hard as we can. People on the top of the mountain are not going to step off the top of the mountain if they can help it. And that's just true. They might give up a little. Maybe a little bit if they're making 250000 or more. surtax, But the deeper, deeper compassion, compassion is not as powerful a motive as greed. That's what we've learned thus far. Isn't that interesting? But maybe there can be some people who represent that. That league of compassion, that deeper spiritual truth that comes through. Because the more you work on yourself spiritually, the more compassion just arises spontaneously. And you begin to see how armored your heart has been by your mind and a fear about your fear of your own heart. Because when you see somebody poor on the street. If you really opened your heart, they'd probably end up in your living room. And you can't handle that. You don't know how to set boundaries, so you end up armoring your heart and you go around half alive because you're afraid of your own heart. Isn't that bizarre? Isn't that bizarre? We're in the funny place where we hate the illness and we hate the cure. As far as democracy, it is a powerful social instrument. But the situation is those that have it don't want to include those that don't. And the ones that don't, don't have the power to demand it. And only when your spiritual consciousness has risen to the point will you no longer see anybody as them, but you see them as us. The Serbs and the Croatians. The Somalians. The Iraqis. the inner city drug pushers. All of them, us, the various faces of us. If you get too focused on individual differences, you lose it. Because behind all the different faces is the one. If you only see the one and don't see all the different faces, you lose it. If you only see the unity and don't see the uniqueness, you miss the mark. What a challenge for us to keep the balance and to see our lives as instruments for bringing that balance back into the social fabric You're great. You're really great. Thank you
0: so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.